Don't you love that movie? Such an awesome uh, moment there and based on a true story. Did you hear the phrase? This little part is called happiness, right? The, the pursuit of happiness, this idea really in, from the Declaration of Independence, this idea that, that we push, we strive, we long, we hunger for happiness. Last week, we decided to uh, talk about the light and fluffy topic of the meaning of life, the very purpose, the, the essence of life, and what life is all about. And we looked at um, uh, what I argue is our default purpose, whether unconsciously or consciously, I think that most of us, and I would include myself in that, most of us live, perhaps we don't contemplate the meaning of life every day, but the way we live our lives, we have this sense that our default purpose in life is the pursuit of happiness. As you, as you look at that, as you wrestle through that, I think it's partly um, Declaration of Independence. I, th I think it seems right. When I looked up secret of life, really it was, what's the secret to make you happy? Happiness is all of that. And we asked the question last week, is what do we think scripture, in particular how the apostle Paul would handle the life, the question, what is the meaning of life? Would he agree with this idea that the meaning of life, really the essence of life, is the pursuit of happiness? And we looked at this amazing passage where he addresses some uh, non-Jewish, non-Christian philosophers in uh, Athens. And he unpacks and makes a presentation that he, he has very uh, little worldview consistency. They don't believe in one God. They don't believe in any of this. And we arrived at this passage of scripture from Paul, Acts 17, 27 and 28. Some of you marked uh, that in your Bibles. Good passage to mark. mark. God, uh, Paul said, God did this so that they... People everywhere, you and I, people of all times, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he, God, is not far from any of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. That really, we argued that, that Paul would see the, the longing for him, the, the pursuit, not necessarily uh, of simply the things that we think will make us happy. That's really our default mode, right? We think that wealth will make us happy. So what do we do? We pursue wealth. We think deep and abiding relationships with one another will make us happy. So what do we do? We pursue deep and, and, and those relationships, intimate relationships. You can, you can say that with, with fame or significance or contribute, meaningful contribution. We do all those and those are meaningful and important pursuits. But I think what 
Paul was arguing is they're not the center. They're not the essence. They're not what should drive us. In fact, he's saying what should drive us is that our creator, the one who knit us together in our mother's wombs, he is offering a relationship with us. And you could call it true happiness or true meaning or true significance is that we reach out, that we seek after, that we pursue him, that we pursue God because we get to find him and walk with him. And that's better than any job or amount of wealth that we get to that we get to actually engage with the one who knit us together. There's a concept that's very, very old. Um, it's this idea that God, we were knit together as people, each and every one of us, with this God-shaped hole within us. I think it, you can trace it back to the famous quote from St. Augustine, uh, fourth and fifth century, he said this. Probably some of you have heard this before. He said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That there's these, this idea that he knit us this way for a, a true longing to, to connect with our creator, to, to engage with our God. And he put it in the very fabric of our soul. And nothing else will satisfy. Probably a quote that you're not as familiar with is from the 1700s, a philosopher, Blaise Pascal. And he says this, it's a little bit more detailed, but, but listen, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim? But there was once in man a true happiness. Interesting, he uses in the 17th century this idea of happiness. There was once in man this true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print or trace. The empty print or trace. This he tries in vain, man, women and men, children. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, right? We pursue all these things that we think will make us happy. Seeking in things that are not there, uh, not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though not none can help since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. He's saying that each one of us has this hunger, this de desire. He calls it an infinite abyss. <laughs> and we pour finite stuff into it. And maybe for a time we go, yes. But then very shortly we go, that's not, that, that, that's just not quite it. And so we move on to something else that's finite. 
and we put it in. I was wondering if we asked this question of the meaning of life, not just of scripture and Paul, but this week I wanted to ask this question of Jesus. What if we were having coffee with Jesus and sat at a table with Jesus, right? And Jesus could have wine. I think he liked wine quite a bit, but thank you, Beth. Um, I'll have coffee during the sermon, but may, but just imagine, you know, he's got this good cup of wine and you get to ask him anything that you want to ask him. In fact, by the way, that is the premise of missing Jesus that you heard Amber talk about is that's what we do, that we ask some of the, the biggest questions of life, like, God, why is there so much suffering? Why is life so hard? Why do you, um, why do you allow so much pain in my life? And yet you're loving God. Well, that doesn't make sense to me. What would it be like if we were able to ask Jesus that question? Wouldn't that be fun? How come we haven't done that like a long time ago? How come we haven't unpacked those questions a long time ago? I'd love for many of you to, to sign up and we're going to wrestle through some of those most profound questions. What would Jesus say about that? So if we were sitting with Jesus across the way and asking, Jesus, the meaning of life, the big question, the big burrito question, right? The purpose of life. What would he say? Now, we don't have him addressing uh, non-Jewish philosophers, but we do have an intriguing engagement between Jesus and another religious leader found in uh, Mark chapter 12. Would you turn there with me? And uh, Mark 12, that chapter is about Jesus. Um, he's in the temple courts, right? He's in the temple courts and he's teaching and the Jewish re religious leaders are really upset with him and they are trying to trap him. So they are trying to ask the most difficult questions that they can imagine to trip up Jesus, Right, so they ask him about resurrection and the afterlife. They ask, ask him about taxation, right? Big issue there. And, and Jesus, he handles it, um, and he knows that they're trying to trap him. They know that they, don't, they have ill motives, and he answers them brilliantly. But then there's a religious leader that doesn't come with any guile in his heart, that he doesn't come trying to trap Jesus. In fact, I think this is why Jesus gives him a straight answer. Because it seems from the context of the story, this religious leader really, he really wants to know. In fact, in the context of the, the Jewish faith and in the temple courts, this is probably the question it's the it's the big enchilada question or burrito whatever i'm using taco it's the big taco question for this follower of god in jesus context we're going to pick up in the uh, verse 28 mark 12 verse 28 says this 
one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, religious leaders trying to uh, catch Jesus, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him the big taco question. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, this is the big one because uh, the, the rabbis, the scholars, they would wrestle and they had identified over 600 commandments in the Old Testament. And, and they would say, well, this is a, a heavy commandment. This is a significant one. This is a, a lighter commandment. And they would debate and wrestle and how, which is, which is the, the one that we really have to like, really dial in on, really focus in, and which is kind of not, it's lighter, it's all that. So that was the, the heart, the word of God, the revelation of God himself and all these commandments in the Old Testament. And they're saying they would wrestle with this day in, day out. They would write volumes, commentaries, on this and so the leader he hears Jesus giving these good answers these difficult questions and he's like I'm going to ask him the question so interesting Jesus doesn't respond with a question as he almost always does so you should pay attention to that he simply says verse 29 the most important one Answer Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these straightforward question answer by Jesus well said teacher the man replied it was rabbinic tradition to kind of re-give an answer in a summation form and that's what he does he follows form the religious leader does you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's an, a significant thing as well. Where are they? Where are they having this discussion? The temple courts where all the ritual of the faith is happening, where the sacrifices, the, the burnt offerings, everything is taking a place. The Jews saw Jerusalem as the center of the world and universe and the temple representing that center. And that's where all the, the, the rituals of the faith is happening. And then this religious leader goes, that's right. In fact, that idea of loving God with everything you've got it's more important than all of that. I wonder if there were other religious leaders said, what? You can't say that. Listen to what Jesus responds. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. 
And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. I don't know anywhere else in scripture that he says that to someone. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Could be wrong. If I am, let me know. But wow, wow why? So, so he, it's like he's saying, yes, you're on it. You're on the right path. You're moving. You're not there yet. What does he need? What does that religious leader who's so close, he's got the big idea, he's, he's seeing it and he's articulating it, he's hungering and longing for that, he asks Jesus with a pure heart, what else does he need? Well, let's unpack Jesus' responses a little bit together. What Jesus does is he responds not first with a commandment, does he? He responds first with a a statement of belief. A statement of a belief that comes from Deuteronomy 6.4. It is known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema is Hebrew for hear, the first word of the Shema. And in Jesus' time and still today, that pious Jews recite the Shema, oftentimes in the morning and the evening, as a statement of belief and faith. They're saying, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Not dissimilar to how Paul started in Acts 17 when he was talking to the philosophers. He starts with, with a, a worldview statement. He, he starts with this, the God, Acts 17, 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. So he's saying, before I get to the do, before we get to the command, let's back up just a moment here and begin with the who. And that is God. The Shema was not only an affirmation of belief in one God and that he's a creator of all things, but it's also a belief in his character, in the context of the Jewish faith and the Old Testament. It was a, a proclamation not only that we believe in one God, but he is a covenant-making God. Not only is he the creator of all things in heaven and earth, but he incredibly has chosen a people and says, come, I will make a covenant with you, a covenant of love, enduring love, and we can have this relationship together. So the Jews, as they recite the Shema morning and evening, they're, yes, it's a statement of faith, but also in the character of who that one God is. He's a God who makes a covenant like a marriage with his people. And he says, I will be your God. And I'm inviting you to be my people, to walk with me and my love endures. I'll always be there. I'll never let you go. I'm your God. 
Jesus begins with that statement, almost if to say, before we get to any do, before we get to any commandments, we got to be straight, we got to be central, we got to understand what we believe about this one God and his love for us. And once you've got that one love, that idea of who God is and the relationship that he offers to you, which is greater than any sacrifice that's happening yards away. Now we get to the one command. And in fact, Deuteronomy 6.4, it goes right into 6.5. So Jesus isn't linking these together. He's just continuing on from the Old Testament. And it, he talks about this idea of a complete love. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. You see, it's this idea that who God is, that he is a God who makes a covenant of love with us. If you understand that, then you'll get to the purpose of life. And simply put is to love him back. It's to respond. He is a God who pursues you and invites you to pursue him back. Now I'm going to read how Deuteronomy 6 continues to see if you believe my argument that this is the purpose of life. Let's see if you guys agree with me. I think we have it on the pot. Yes, we do. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. In other words, he's saying, yeah, the love of God, it's a periphery issue. It's just as you work your day, right? As you do your job and you're in your relationship, don't remember God, God loves you, right? So you might forget about it during the day, but if you could come back to it, that's not really how Deuteronomy reads, is it? Is it? No. no? You guys with me? Yes? There was sarcasm there, but you missed my sarcasm. Do you see how central this is? He's saying, yeah, put it on your forehead. Wouldn't that be awkward? Like in a conversation, going to the store? Yes, I'll have some eggs. And you've got this thing on your head. It's the central idea, these commandments, the word of God, the revelation of God, that he loves you and we get to respond. That should be the center of your life. That should be the essence. That should be the purpose in which you live. It should invade every nook and cranny of your life. I was talking with uh, Michael Mensing our former youth director, about a week and a half ago. And Michael has a call on his life. It's a beautiful call. He believes that, that God is calling him 
to uh, plant churches in Europe, Copenhagen, uh, other places. And, uh, and he's pursuing that, and he decided that he's probably going to have to work a job. He's going to have to be a tent maker, bivocational. He's going to have to, so he wants to develop a skill here in the States for when he goes to uh, Europe that it's universal. And he, he discovered through prayer and seeking the Lord that he loves to cook. And so he wants to become a cook, trained here, and then go to Europe, support himself as a cook so he can church plant and encourage. Isn't that a cool vision? It's a beautiful vision on his heart and life. So we're meeting, we're talking about that. We, we met at Rock Bottom Brewery because um, that's where he's gotten a job. He started out as a dishwasher and they've already progressed him up to part-time dishwasher and finished cook, but he's gonna take classes at Pikes Peak. And so he's telling me this story that he was meeting uh, his supervisor. It was like his first day of work. And the supervisor says to Michael, uh, so what's your problem? And Michael goes, uh, what do you mean? And the supervisor goes, what's your story? Hey, most guys that work in the back, they're ex-cons. Now, I'm thankful for that. There's not many jobs that ex-cons can get. I'm, I'm very thankful that the restaurant business allows you know, dishwashers and, and, and cooks and so forth. And so he was just assuming that Michael was an ex-con. He kind of has that look too, doesn't he? <laughs> so, uh, so he's like, yeah, what's your story? So Michael goes into, I feel God has a call in my life to plant churches in Europe. <laughs> Wouldn't have you loved to be there for that story? <laughs> and he explains and, you know, transferable skill and doing all those things and, and so forth. And you know what? His supervisor, I guess he's a little bit colorful of a person. And he says this to Michael. Oh, so you're a unicorn. <laughs> what did he mean by that? Who are you? What? What are you talking about? He's probably never met someone like Michael. Right? who could make a living in a different way and probably a better living. And yet the acquisition of wealth and a family and 2.5 children and a white picket fence, that's not the center of his heart. That's not the, the center of his longing. In, in fact, the center of his heart is to obey the call that Christ has on his life. And, and you see, could you imagine if we were all there? I, I, again, I, I stated this last week. I, I wake up every morning, I believe, with the pursuit of happiness, the center. Yeah. But I'm trying to move from that. I'm going for the true happiness. I'm trying to move from that to the pursuit of God and his call and his life for me. Can you imagine the testimony if we had that many awkward conversations with people in the world? That if, if, he, if, if we represented a life that was really living the commandment to love God with everything we've 
God. Now, a few nuances um, of what Jesus says to us. Just unpacking this a little bit further. Did you notice? Probably not. I, Jesus adds understanding. So Deuteronomy is heart, soul, and strength. Jesus adds a fourth, understanding. Those words weren't necessarily precise in their meaning, but here's the main idea behind them. When, when a Jewish person used the word heart, it wasn't just emotions like we use it in the United States. It includes emotions. But really the heart was the center of man. The, the core of women, human beings. It was, it was that central piece of who we are. And, and so it, it really, it's saying to, to love God with your heart, yes, includes emotions, but really at the core, at the depths, at the greatest foundation of who you are, your identity. You love God. Soul was used really as a general term of our interior world. All that who we are, the, our non-material existence, our, our person, our spirit, especially our will, conscience, our will, and our decision-making, that, that God is inviting us to will, to decide. Michael had to make several decisions and continues to make several decisions to keep the love of God, the pursuit of God, obedience to God at the center of his life. Our mind and understanding, Jesus includes that. Not sure why he includes that. Probably a level of completeness. He wants to make sure, and in his context, it was very scholarly, very uh, rabbinical and teaching and discussion. So he's saying understanding your mind, your understanding, what you think about, what you piece together up here. What do you think about mostly during your day? Do you think about work? Do you think about your relationships? Do you think about what you'd like to do you think about food, God, the pursuit of God, the center. And then finally, our strength, of course, from our interior life, interior kingdom, then the flow into our bodies, and that leads to what we do, how we serve. So Jesus adds that fourth component, this complete understanding, and then he adds... A second one, not from Deuteronomy, but Leviticus 19.18. And he says, the second is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Why would he add that? Because he's Jesus. And he cares about the broken. He cares about each and every person. And he knows that to really love the Father is to love people. The flow, that it can't stop there. It can't stop simply with our relationship with God. It has to flow out. Physically, yes. Relationally, absolutely. It has to flow out 
to, to serving, to loving, especially the least of these. One of Jesus' disciples, John, would say this, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. He's saying it doesn't work that way. You can't be zealous for God and yet hurting others, right? That, that same love has to flow from the depths of your soul. Now, Jesus wasn't really, it's thought, that he, there, there is a brilliance in the linking of those two. They, they think that others might have done that before. But here's what I want to argue, is that Jesus perhaps doesn't link these two commandments with the Shema, brand new, but he enables, he allows us to live the purpose of life. Why did he say to the religious leader, you're not far, you're, you're close, you're right there. What did the religious leader, the religious leader has the purpose of life. The religious leader has the center, what life is about, the essence, it's right there. How come he's not in the kingdom yet? Because he's got to follow Jesus there. Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now he gets, Jesus is the one who opens up. He is the door. He rips the curtain, opens up us to live a life with a different purpose, to live a life with this different calling, to live not as the world lives, but to live in the pursuit of, of a loving God who invites us and then hallelujah, he gives us his Holy Spirit to help us when we make mistakes. When we wake up every morning in the pursuit of happiness, the wrong pursuits. And he says, let's talk about that. I think this leads to the all important question. How do we do that? What does it mean to love God? God completely in 2018. It's the start of the year. I thought it would be a good time to share this message. How could we live 2018 differently than we lived 2017? How could we really take what Jesus says is the most important, is more significant than anything else, how do we take those commandments and really live it? Really say, all right, God, I'm in. Teach me. Help me. How do I do that? I wanted to, to wrap up the story of Keith Green I started last week. He's the performer in the 1970s. He was probably the, the Christian artist in the 1970s. And a famous musician, and he was in the drug culture and all of that, and I love he decided, he and his wife uh, decided to make Jesus their guru. 
They weren't Christians. They didn't like church and they didn't like Christians. But they decided in a 1970s kind of way, everybody had a spiritual guru. Let's make Jesus a spiritual guru and see what happens, right? So they do that. They're walking with Jesus as the spiritual guru, but not Christians, don't believe he's God and so forth. Eventually, I told you the story where they, they came to Christ and they start growing well, then Keith Green was this gifted musician playing piano and um, guitar at an early age. He had dreams uh, of fame and pursuing this, this music life and all of that. And he would play in bars. He would play at homes. And he'd be paid, paid a lot of, of money to do all that. But there'd be a lot of drugs and alcohol and so forth that was happening in there. And as after he became a Christian and he's walking with Christ Jesus, he realized that he's losing his passion to play in these venues. And Keith Green was all in if you know any of his story, no compromise is the story of his biography. And he begins to wonder about music, his love, his heart, this thing that he's so gifted at and he has linked all his dreams and longings around. And he says to his wife, I think God wants me to give him my music. And I might never play in public ever again. And his wife wasn't so sure about that because that's how they paid the bills. And she's like, okay. And so he, in this beautiful moment, he gives what really is central to his life. He gives over to God, not knowing if he'll ever sit at a keyboard again, not knowing how it's going to all end up. He had no idea that he'd become the Christian artist in 1970. He just gave it to God. And I actually don't know how long it was. But, you know, in hindsight, you think God wanted to deal with his core. The father wanted to deal with his heart. He wanted him, he was inviting him to, to give over that which was most precious, that which our ideas, our dreams, our pursuits, our surrounding, to give it to him and entrust him with what's at our core. Because the father has made you the apple of his eye. That's the testimony of scripture. He wants you to make him the apple of your eye, that center and that core. Now, of course, eventually, um, God began to woo this idea in Keith's life where he slowly gave him back music. And he said, I have gifted you. I'm the one who's knit you together with these passions and longings. Now do it for my glory, honor, and praise. And that's what he did. And he changed the world around him, Keith Green did. Now I want to give you two, um, well, I already gave you one last week, but I wanted to share this 
there are two things that have helped me wake up in the morning and go, I want to pursue you, God. There's two simple disciplines that have made more significant. I've already confessed that I'm with you all. I wake up with the pursuit of happiness right there at the center. There's two simple applications that I've wanted to give you in these two weeks. Last week, I gave you the one, and that is the, the self-revelation of God, which is the word of God. If we're really going to love him with our mind, then let's read his words each morning, right? I, it, morning is so helpful for me, right? Because I, I, I need to get off the pursuit of happiness. I need to get off my agenda. I need to get off that and say, God, what are you saying? And so we gave you a little, um, this soap, this idea of scripture, observation, application, and prayer, a very simple formula uh, to use to choose a book. I don't know if any of you thought of that uh, this week, but I'm really inviting you daily this morning in 2018, if you want to get Christ at the center, would you begin with his word? Set your alarm a little bit earlier. All right? The second one, I, I was really wrestling with what is that key thing. You know, it would be so great if there was like a single prayer that we could pray that would help us. Wouldn't it have been awesome if like one day the disciples would have gone to Jesus and said, teach us to pray, and he actually gave a prayer, right? Now, now, I think this is significant. There's a lot of prayers in the Bible, right? Remember a prayer of Jabez? That's a good prayer and encourage you to pray that every day. My only issue with this, I like prayer of Jabez, but here's my issue. Jesus didn't give the disciples the prayer of Jabez. I want to pray that prayer. It's a good prayer. I want to pray a lot of Nehemiah's prayer and Paul, the Apostle Paul's prayer, a lot of good prayers, but there is one prayer, right? The Lord's Prayer. And I don't think he meant it that we would simply recite the Lord's Prayer, though I think there's grand value in that, but that we would pray it conversationally. And I'm just telling you, friends, these two disciplines of reading and praying the Lord's Prayer every morning. Sometimes I, I pray it through the day because I don't get through it. It can go as fast as five minutes. It can go as long as half hour or throughout the day. All right? Let me, uh, yeah, go ahead. The worship team come up and I'm gonna just, do you have a, a insert in there that, and I'm just going to explain that insert really quick. Would you take this home and tomorrow morning, would you think about the first line of the Lord's Prayer with me? Say it with me. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What is that first prayer? It's a prayer of adoration. So instead of just saying that, 
I pray that, and then I pray prayers of adoration, like, Father, I praise you that you are the one true living God. Jesus, I praise you that you are the lamb without blemish, the lamb that was slain. Holy Spirit, I praise you that you are the agent of the kingdom. The next line is um, a kingdom prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That song that we sang, in fact, I'm wondering if we could do the third song for communion. Yeah, uh, no, here in your presence. When heaven and earth come together, that's our seven-year vision in one phrase. And that's what that prayer is. Whatever is not right in my heart and soul that is not of heaven, I pray the reality of heaven into my heart and soul. I pray for this church that we would be a kingdom life church. And I pray for you all because I know there's a lot that's not of heaven that's in your heart and soul. Again, sarcasm. You guys are... Yeah, but you get the idea of the Lord's Prayer and you pray through that. It can be five minutes. It can be longer. You know, the Pope recently came out and he said, I'd like to change the Lord's Prayer. It was the end of 2017. I said, what? I don't care if you're the Pope. You don't get to change the Lord's Prayer. And then I listened to what he had to say and it made sense. It was the... Uh, and lead us not into temptation. He thinks a better translation is keep us, save us from temptation. I also think uh, temptation can be seen as trial. That we get to pray, Lord, we've been in a trial in 2017. Would you, would you bring us out of this trial? Get to pray that. Do you understand? Friends, I'm giving it to you as practically as I can. I think the Lord would bring a revival in this church if we lived those two simple disciplines. Seeking the Lord, living in the Lord, loving the Lord with everything we've got. Let's pray for communion. Lord, forgive us when we have elevated pursuits of any kind above you. Forgive us, Lord, when you have stretched out your hands in loving fellowship, inviting us to a different kind of life, a different relationship, a different way, and we have turned away from your invitation. Forgive us, Lord. Lord, we ask for your mercy and your grace that in 2018, uh, Lord God, that this would be a different year, a different life. That our marriages would be different because we're pursuing you first and foremost. 
that our school, our education, our jobs, every relationship that we have would be different because you are at our center and our core. Jesus, thank you that you died on the cross to enable us to live this purpose, to live this life. Thank you that you knew we, we fill our lives, our souls with barriers, with sin, with brokenness. And you wipe them clean by your blood. Thank you, Jesus.